Hey everybody, welcome to episode 168 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. Excited to be coming to you today from Austin, Texas. Today's main topic, we will be talking about recovery and how you can recover like a champion in order to be ready for all the work to come in your training cycle. It's simpler perhaps than you think, and so I'm going to break down the key recovery elements for you to be thinking about so that you can determine whether or not you're doing well on those dimensions or not. So we'll get to that as our main topic. Before we jump there, we have current events to talk about as always and particularly excited to have track back with indoor action continuing as we head towards the U.S. Indoor Championships, which is coming up. One announcement on indoor, indoors, however, is that the World Indoors Meet, which was slated to take place this year, has been postponed to next year. It's been shifted by an entire year because of the coronavirus outbreak in China. That event was scheduled to take place in China. And the World Athletics, also previously known as the IAAF, has decided instead of moving that meet, they're going to shift it an entire year which surprises me a little bit. I think it's a bit of a drastic move. It seems like they could have found another place to have the event this year, but I guess they don't want to make that shift, and so they're pushing it back an entire year. I think that's interesting. I was talking to Colleen Quigley. We did a podcast with her for the Clean Sport Collective podcast, which will be coming out later, and she was saying that the Bowerman Track Club had plans to go to World Indoors this year in their build-up towards Tokyo, but obviously will not be doing that any longer because of the postponement. Obviously, though, still a lot of them will be racing at USA, so it'll be fun to see that. But that is one bit of, a new, bit of news is that the coronavirus has affected World Indoors. But beyond that, looking at World Indoor action from this past weekend, we had several of the Bowerman Track Club athletes competing, and so I wanted to highlight some of their results. Evan Jager was back in action after battling injury over the last, really, 18 months. Of course, Evan Jager is the, the top U.S. steepler. He missed his consecutive U.S. steeple title last summer because of injury, but seems to be back and healthy. He ran a world indoor lead for the mile, running 356 this past weekend to be back back on form as we head into this Olympic year. So that's encouraging to see for the U.S.'s top steepler. And then we had a bunch of the Bowerman Babes in action in Seattle at the University of Washington. Shelby Houlihan led the way with a double victory in the mile and the 800, showing that she's on form heading into this indoor season. She ran 423 in the mile and then came back 35 minutes later to run 201 to win the 800. That's pretty damn impressive. Carissa Schweitzer helped her run and or set the pace in the mile and finished second there in 424 and ended up coming back about an hour later and pacing her teammates in the indoor 3K. And so Carissa Schweitzer also had really impressive double. And then 
in the 3K shit, there were a bunch of her other teammates calling Quigley one in a PR, 844. Kate Grace was second in a PR for her as well, 846. Courtney Frerichs PR'd in 847. And Vanessa Frazier ran an 851 where they swept the top four spots in that 3K. So the Bowerman ladies are looking strong heading into U.S. Indoors. And they're kicking off this Olympic year with a bang. In addition, an indoor action across the country in Boston. You had the Joe Bossard group with Emma Coburn running at Boston University where they had a group in the the 1500 there where Corey McGee was really their key athlete trying to run a fast time. And McGee was able to run a 404 to get a two-second indoor PR paced by her teammates Emma Coburn and Aisha Pratt-Lear. So big result there for Corey McGee. Her teammate Dominique Scott was also there in Boston trying to get under the 5K Olympic standard of 1510. Doing this on an indoor track makes it a little bit harder, but she was also paced by her teammates in this one and a group of athletes women went for that standard unfortunately only one of the ladies and not any of the boss ladies was able to get there emily limpari was able to run just under the standard closing strongly in 1507 whereas sharon locady was able to get second in that race and finish just above the standard in 1513 so there was quite a bit of carnage there in that race but kind of fun to watch them go after the standard and certainly cool to see those ladies helping each other trying to get that done so those are some updates from across the indoor world we've got other news coming from track and field this weekend including new shoe regulations from the uh, world athletics again also called the IAAF or formerly called the IAAF as I predicted in my in my recent episode with 2020 predictions, we did get some new standards here from the IAAF, now called the World Athletics. If you if you want to get a lot more on this, you can listen to our Clean Sport episode that came out on Friday, where I had Ross Tucker on with Kara Goucher and Adam Goucher talking about it. But the summary is that. Effective immediately, World Athletics has imposed new standards on footwear thickness, meaning that that athletes can't wear shoes with more than 40 millimeters of thickness in the sole. There also can't be more than one carbon plate stacked within the midsole. You can't have more than one plate, but they have to be configured in a sequential fashion or in the same plane within the midsole versus stacked like what we believe is true within the Nike Alpha Fly that Kipchoge wore for his sub two hour effort. And so those are a couple of new rules that are effective immediately, which means that we believe that the Nike Alpha Fly cannot be worn starting now in competition. The World Athletics also introduced new rules about prototypes that kick in after April 30th. Up until April 30th, it seems like any prototype is fair game. But then after that, the shoe has to be available for at least up to four months to the public, available online or in stores to all 
before for four months before it can be used in competition. So effectively what that means is that the Alpha Fly prototype used by Kipchoge is out. The Nike Vaporfly 4% or the Vaporfly Next% percent are in and stay. But now competitors to Nike have until April 30th to get their version of those shoes out to the public. Otherwise, their athletes will not be able to use those shoes for the Olympics coming up in Tokyo because we'll be inside the four-month window at that point. So those are the implications. Again, if you want to hear a lot more on that from Kara Goucher and Ross Tucker and Adam Goucher, you can listen to our Clean Sport episode that came out this past Friday. As for my perspective on it, I have mixed feelings. completely understand the frustrations that particularly Kara brings to this topic because, as she says, it seems like suddenly now... World Athletics is finally defining a rule that they've had in place for a long time. This idea of the use of prototypes was in the rule book, but wasn't enforced. It imp- it impacted events starting with the 2016 Olympic trials and all the way, you know, all the way really up until now. It has impacted events in ways that, you know, we are only starting to understand. And yet there was no regulation around prototypes until this point. And by the way, that includes prototypes not only used by Nike athletes, but also now by athletes from other brands. So I understand that frustration. At the same time, I think there is some relief from my perspective that now at least we have a more defined set of rules. So we aren't going to be stuck, hopefully, in this place where there, the sky is the limit when we're getting to this really crazy intense arms race where, you know, brands can't really keep up with the newfangled ideas coming out, particularly from the Nike Innovation Lab. But at least now we have some limits and a playground with, with, within which the brands can, can work that seems to be fairly defined around a certain midsole thickness and a certain configuration of plates. So it's good to have those rules in place and then hopefully now with those rules in place as well as the rules about the use of prototypes that gives us more ability to level the playing field. And while it may take a little bit more time for all the other brands to catch up, at least we won't see Nike continuing to to sort of shoot ahead with their technological innovation around things like the Alpha Fly. So at least Nike's innovation engine has been blunted a little bit, hopefully allowing the other brands to catch up so that we can get back to get back to a scenario where we can believe that the best athletes are winning and, and doing so in footwear technology that is essentially available to all versus only to those athletes with one brand. So again, some mixed feelings there. Now, I do think this opens up a whole host of questions that still need to be answered. Those questions include how are we going to enforce this, particularly at the Olympic trials? Will they be inspecting shoes? Will they be measuring midsole thickness? How are they going to make sure that these rules are followed in competition? That's a big open question. Secondly, what does this mean for the everyday athlete? You know, the World Athletics press release on this topic was a little bit confusing perhaps about whether or not these rules just apply to elite athletes or 
to all athletes competing in competitions sanctioned by these governing bodies. So that still remains to be clarified. And then how does this cascade down to collegiate ranks, to high school ranks? I saw some Twitter debate about that over the weekend. And so that's a big question. You know, how does this affect Boston qualifiers? Will Nike be able to still release the Alpha Fly to the public and have that used in in marathons by the everyday runner versus and just simply not by the elite athletes? That would be an interesting twist, but it seems like a possibility based on what we're seeing and might still mean that people like you and me have to go and consider whether or not we want to use this footwear or not and how we feel about that as an individual. So that's an open question that we're still waiting for answers on. And I'm sure there are others that I'm not mentioning, but at least we have some answers now that there seems to be at least a defined sandbox under which these brands can play. And hopefully that allows the playing field to be leveled again. But the clock is ticking. April 30th is the big day. And you know it looks like Brooks is going to be ready to release their version of the Vaporfly, the Hyperion Elite. So that seems to be coming right around the late February, early March time frame around the Olympic trials. I know that Saucony has a shoe that seems to be ready for prime time to be released before that April 30th date. New Balance has a shoe. I know I've seen that in prototype form. But will they have that ready to go by April 30th? It seems like they need to maybe speed up their process a little bit in order to make that happen. And the same goes for Adidas. We're not really sure where Adidas stands with their response. So all of those brands, now the clock is ticking. They have until April 30th to bring out their versions of this. Otherwise, their sponsored athletes will not be able to wear a prototype in the Olympic Games itself. So... Watch your new shoe announcements to see how all these brands play catch up to meet that April 30th deadline. And the final thing I wanted to talk about in terms of current events relates to some follow-up on Alberto Salazar. It's been noted that the organization Safe Sport, which is essentially an organization that has been created to respond to things like the sexual assault allegations and incidents within the the world of gymnastics, these abuse allegations that are coming from Mary Kane related to her time at the Oregon Project. This organization, Safe Sport, is designed to help govern and police that side of sports to make sure that athletes are protected and respected within the context of those coach-athlete and or coach federation or coach group relationships so safe sport has indefinitely suspended alberto salazar because of mary kane's allegations of emotional abuse associated with her time in at the Oregon project and pending those proceedings it's possible that salazar could be suspended for life by safe sport as an organization so this would be above and above and beyond his four-year doping violation suspension which to me is good news for those that believe in the integrity of our sport and and the protection and respect that is owed to athletes who are competing 
at places like the Nike Oregon project or, you know, versions of it that will come after. So to me, that's good news to see. Relatedly, Nike also released its, the outcome of its internal investigation into the Mary Kane allegations. And they're talking about certain initiatives that they'll be enacting because of that internal investigation. They have said at this point that they will not release the actual results or the findings from the investigation, but they will be talking about the initiatives that will flow from it. I know many, including Mary Kane, are unsatisfied with that and want to actually see the results of that investigation. But either way, this is what Nike is saying they're going to do because of that investigation. They've got, it looks like, five different initiatives that they're talking about in response to the Mary Kane allegations. The first is investing in scientific research into the impact of elite training on girls and women. Second, increasing the number of women coaches in in sport. They don't necessarily say Nike sport. They just say in sport. Third, hiring a vice president of global women's sports marketing in the coming weeks to have strategic oversight of Nike's female athletes. Fourth, creating an athlete think tank to help the company understand the opportunities and challenges faced by female athletes. And finally, fifth, partnering with Crisis Text Line, a free confidential text messaging service for people to ask for help when in crisis. So those are the things coming from the Nike investigation. I think many that are surrounding this topic, including Mary Kane herself, are unsatisfied with those initiatives because without seeing the underlying investigative information about what they found, it's hard to know whether or not those initiatives hit on the the elements that need to be hit. Although if they do enact those, those, some of those initiatives, I think it will be a step in the right direction, but it's hard to know whether or not they're going far enough without really seeing the full context. And so I, I joined Mary Kane in asking Nike for more. Tell us what you're finding. Tell us what you're going to do about it. Give us the ability to hold you accountable to that because this list of initiatives might sound good now, but how, do, how are we going to know whether or not you're actually following through? So I think we all need to continue to hold Nike to an even higher standard than they're currently operating at in order to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. So those are your current events. We've got indoor action, new shoe rules, and of course the latest on Nike and safe sport. Let's talk about recovery as we switch gears into our main topic. And what I want to try to accomplish here is simplifying your thought processes around recovery. I think it's easy to get overwhelmed in talking about recovery because you get a lot of stuff thrown at you, especially a lot of modalities, different modalities that you know may work, may not work, from massage to cryotherapy to float spas to compression boots to ice baths. I mean, there's just a lot of different things that get thrown at us from a recovery standpoint. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by that list of things and then maybe do none of it. And so I want to, in this discussion, try to simplify it a little bit, give you the key things to focus on. And then I'll also give you for that next year, if you're, you know, what, 
first what are the core elements and then for that next tier of things if you want to do more what do those look like as well so that's kind of how we'll divide up this discussion and there's really three things for me that fall into the main elements of recovery where you want to ask yourself am I doing all the right things on these three dimensions and if so then you can go to that next tier if you're not if you're not doing the right things on these three dimensions then it probably makes more sense for you to focus on these three dimensions the core elements first before you layering it layer in you know some of these other more novel modalities so that's a little bit of an intro before we jump into what are these three kind of core elements to recovery I want to talk a briefly just about the case for recovery. What are we trying to accomplish? And I think that on the surface, that may be pretty straightforward, or you might think, kind of roll your eyes and think, well, of course, recovery is important. And I think it's easy for us to just roll roll by that without really trying to think about, well, what are we trying to accomplish here? And there's really two big things that we're trying to accomplish with recovery. One is preparing your body for the next work. That's probably the more obvious of the two things. We do hard work and then we need recovery so that we can prepare our body for more hard work. And really you want to think this about this in the context of you want to go hard when you're going hard. You want to go easy when you're going easy. So balancing that stress and rest cycle so that you're able to put really good work into the stress parts of the cycle, into the, the workouts and the long runs, the hard parts, while giving you the recovery balance, the easy parts are appropriately balanced so that when you come back into the next hard part of the cycle, you're ready to go. So that's that's the more obvious part of recovery. It's just that balance with the hard work so that you can do and get the most out of that hard work. The second thing that happens in recovery is actual fitness building. I think we forget that part of the equation. The stress part of training, the work, isn't actually where you truly build fitness. It's where you create the stimuli that will build fitness, but unless you're recovering properly, you're not actually giving your body the opportunity to build fitness. And if you think about this in a weight training context, if I go and I'm trying to improve the strength in my pecced muscles and, and let's just take a simple exercise of a simple bench press. If I'm trying to improve the, the amount of weight that I can bench press. When I actually do bench press, I'm actually tearing down the muscles. I'm actually creating small tears in the muscles. I'm tearing down the muscles by doing the work associated with bench press. And it isn't until I take a break and those muscles repair themselves and build, them, build themselves back stronger after that stress do I really get stronger? So in weightlifting, your strength comes actually not during the actual exercise itself, but 
after the exercise where you allow yourself for those muscles to build back stronger. And so, for example, if I were to go and I were to bench press every day the same exercises, I wouldn't build strength like I would if I bench pressed maybe once or twice a week and then allowed that time gap for the muscles to repair themselves and build back stronger in order to improve over time. And essentially the same is true with our aerobic system. And of course, there's some neuromuscular components as well. When we do hard workouts, we're creating stimuli that are really tearing us down so that when we go into that recovery mode, if we give ourselves time and capacity to recover, then we can build that fitness back, consolidate that work back into fitness that we can put back into other workouts. And so your your fitness building comes really in that time of recovery that allows you to take the stimuli that you put that you gained or put into a workout or a long run, take that, consolidate that fitness into your body, allow your body to recover, build back stronger, so that when you go do your work, you're ready to go. So that's something really important to remember. Not only are you preparing your muscles for more work in recovery and also preventing injury in recovery, but you're also building fitness in recovery. That's where you consolidate the gains from workouts so that you can then go back and run faster and stronger. I think oftentimes we forget about that second piece of the equation and we get greedy with our recovery. We think we have to press in recovery in order to get more fitness. And all we're really doing in that pressing, in that going too fast on recovery runs, all we're really doing is short-circuiting our body's ability to repair, recover, and consolidate fitness gains. So that instead of getting the most out of the workout stimulus, you get less out of that workout stimulus and therefore don't build fitness in the same way because you're not treating recovery as seriously as you need to and with the ease at which you need to. So that's sort of my preamble here is maybe the obvious case, but a reminder about why recovery is so important. So now let's talk about the core elements of recovery. What are those? There's three things, and you may or may not be surprised by these three things. I think you might be surprised by the simplicity of it. And again, for these three core elements of recovery, I want you to focus there. And until you're really optimizing these three things, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to spend too much time on the other modalities, which I'll talk about at the end. What are the three things? The three things, movement, one, two, sleep, three, food as fuel. Movement, sleep, food as fuel. Those are the building blocks for recovery. So let's talk about those in turn. Movement, first and primary. In my opinion, I think you could probably argue that maybe sleep is first and primary. Both those th- both those two things go together, and I think the first of these two things, movement and sleep, are by far and away the most important. Brad, Brad referenced it a little bit on my last podcast, and I think we all know it intuitively, 
but aren't willing to necessarily commit to the work required to get ourselves better sleep hygiene, we'll get to sleep in a second. Movement is first though. So movement, what does that mean? Recovery is not doing nothing. Recovery is movement. And that comes in a lot of different forms. I had Marilyn Faulkner on the show one time talking about running for newbies and running for running for beginners. She gave me the quote, motion is lotion for the muscles. Still love that. I also like to say movement equals blood flow equals healing. When you move, that promotes blood flow when you're within your body, particularly with your veins. You know, the, the arteries in your respiratory system, the arteries have muscles associated with them, body. And that muscle, the biggest one, starts with the heart. That beats and pumps blood to your working muscles. But they're also muscles associated with your arteries. Arteries have a little thicker wall that has sort of a sheath of muscle around it. And that helps pump the blood out from the heart to the extremities. The veins, however, don't have that same thickness in the wall. And therefore, it's it's harder for blood to flow back to the heart via the veins. And one of the ways that's accomplished is through movement. Movement promotes blood flow, helps circulate blood through the body, giving the veins a little help pushing that blood back to your heart so that everything can circle again. And so you want to move in order to get oxygen and blood, more oxygen and more blood to the working muscles so that it those working muscles can repair themselves, can do the work to get your body ready for what's to come and also to prime your body for respiration to come, which you use respiration in exercise to, to go fast. So movement equals blood flow equals healing. And recovery starts with movement. It can start with something as simple as easy walking movement. And one of the things I learned after having kids, I was greatly concerned that I would be able to recover from long runs post kids because typically you know, I, I can't just put my legs up and watch football on a Saturday anymore. Not that I would always do that all the time pre-kids, but I would more often. Can't, oh, can't just throw my legs up because I've got soccer games to get to now. But before that, when they were younger, you know, was running around taking care of them, making sure everything, you know, was taken care of. Diapers were changed. Kids were happy. All sorts of things were happening in afternoons on Saturdays and Sundays that that just didn't happen before. And so I was really concerned that that would affect my recovery. And while it may on the margin overall affect sleep, we'll talk about that in a second. I find that now I'm more recovered on a weekend post long run than I was before because I have a lot of easy movement happening throughout the day on a Saturday and throughout the day on a Sunday than I did before. I'm not just kicking my legs up watching TV now I'm out going to soccer games, kicking the ball around with the kids as they're warming up or practicing and or going out to yesterday I was watching flag football and throwing the ball with my son on the sideline there as we were watching my other son's games. And so I'm just moving a lot more 
on Saturday and Sunday afternoons post long run than what than I was before. And I've found that, and it's all easy movement, nothing rigorous, nothing crazy, all easy movement. I've found that I feel more recovered now because of that easy movement in the afternoons on Saturday and Sunday than I used to. So going for a walk with your dog, moving around a little bit, I think throughout the day, particularly on the weekends post long run, but I think anytime you have a workout during the week, if you're at work, if you go straight from a track workout to work, try to move around throughout the day instead of just sitting stationary at your desk. I think that easy movement kickstarts recovery, promotes that blood flow that we're talking about so that the body can prepare itself for the work to come. So movement is a part of recovery starts with easy movement on the days after long or hard efforts. Continuing from there, it also gets into recovery running. Obviously, this is active rest or the part of the equation that, you know, is a little bit more rigorous in recovery. So these recovery runs and I recommend doing them the day after a speed workout or the day after a long run. Really, really important to get that motion. And as I talked about a few episodes ago, your recovery runs should be anywhere from two minutes to maybe even two and a half minutes slower than your target marathon pace or two and a half to three minutes slower than your target half marathon pace. That's pretty easy, pretty slow relative to your paces, but that's what's required for the body to get moving in a way that promotes blood flow without creating too much stress and tearing you down. So, that's critical. And there will be people that tell me, I can't go that slow. Well, I would say, yes, you can. Just do it. Practice it. Try it. Force it. Force it. And I promise you, you'll find that you're then recovering better, getting more, and also getting more out of your quality workouts as a result. And if that's hard for you, you know, I think sometimes those recovery days you know, are good days to go out with with friends that can hold you accountable to keeping things slow and, and hopefully, you know, not pressing too much on those days, because if you press too much on those days, then you're defeating the purpose. You're not accomplishing what you need to accomplish. So take those easy runs, super easy, and you'll be in a good place. So within this movement bucket, we've talked about just easy movement on the day after a workout or long run. We've talked about recovery runs. All that's pretty basic. Also, within the category of easy movement, I would place any type of mobility work that you're doing. I think mobility work, and I differentiate this from flexibility work. So, flex. science has shown us that stretching is not necessarily something that's beneficial for for recovery unless you're already stretching. If you have a stretching routine that you've already implemented and that you've established and that does make you feel better, there is science that says that you should continue that routine. For those that don't have a stretching routine, stretching is not necessarily required to add to your program, but we do encourage mobility work, which is a little bit different. Mobility is not necessarily the length of the muscles, but it's how your muscles and your joints 
move and the range of motion that you're able to achieve because of that movement pattern. I would highly recommend the book, as I've recommended before, Running Rewired. Jay Dishery in that book talks a lot about mobility. He also has mobility tests you can do inside that book, as well as follow-on exercises depending on where your limitations are. But if you have restrictions in some of your joint mobility, then that can lead to issues and injury. One example for me is that my left ankle is tight and has some mobility restrictions because of a sprained ankle, really severe sprained ankle that I suffered in high school that was not treated properly. And so now I'm living with that kind of an ongoing, on an ongoing basis. And unless I work on my left ankle mobility, then it causes issues for me that manifest in other places. And so I've got some basic ankle mobility work that I do, but there's other basic mobility work that you can do depending on where your restrictions are in order to stay happy and healthy. So I would also put mobility work under this category of movement for recovery. And what mobility work you need is going to depend on where your restrictions are. So again, I would encourage you to get the book Running Rewired. Again, Jay has some mobility tests you can do in there to tell you where your mobility restrictions are that might affect your running. And he also gives you in there exercises, sample exercises you can do depending on where those restrictions fall. So get that book if you haven't already and figure out the mobility work that you need to focus on. For me, ankles is number one. For you, it might be something else. So I would highly encourage you to check that out. So mobility. Movement, again, broken down in three areas. Easy movement that you can take that you can do that can take place after a run or workout or even a race getting that easy movement the rest of the day I think is critical recovery running that next day's run that active rest and by the way the more sore you feel after a workout the more that means you need that recovery run in order to bounce back and of course you're going to want to to start that super easy and keep it easy on those days in order to get the right benefit. And then the third thing, again, mobility. So that's that. Now let's talk about sleep. Brad talked about sleep extensively and I've talked about it on this podcast before. Wanted to kind of talk a little bit more today about the different variables that go into sleep. And this is something that I'm learning more about in real time because I got this this new tool that I'm using, experimenting with, called the Aura Ring. It's spelled O-U-R-A, and it's a ring you wear on your finger. You can wear it on either your right hand, ring finger, index finger, or middle finger, and it helps measure basically your sleep cycles. So it's measuring heart rate, heart rate variability, body temperature, and movement during the night in order to give you a sleep score that is broken down into the different components of not only how how you did in terms of what sleep cycles you get, but also your sleep quantity, sleep quality, and some other dimensions that it's scoring you on. And so as a as a part of this, I'm learning I'm learning about sleep in a way that I haven't before, especially as it relates to my own sleep. But before we go there, I want to remind you 
that sleep not only has impact on your ability to perform athletically, but also has impact on a host of other things in your life from mental focus and acuity to overall stress management to body composition and how your your body stores and processes food. So there's a lot of different things that sleep affects, not just performance. And while I'm not here to tell you that you have to be perfect on it, I just want to make sure that we're all recognizing that this is this is a really important variable. And I think sometimes we don't put enough emphasis on it. We all know it's important, but we also kind of all tend to easily sacrifice it without really realizing the bigger implications. There's also some studies now that are showing that, that a lack of sleep can shorten our life. And so it's, it's a big deal. And I know you all know that, and I'm not saying you have to be perfect with it, but it's something that keeps climbing the priority list for me of something to, to worry about and focus on because I think we can all continue to do better. So we'll start with the the basics. As you all know, sleep quantity is critical. And generally, as we know, the the rules here are that you want to try to get about eight hours per day of total sleep. Or if you think about that, that's about 56 hours across the week over seven days. And while, yes, it's great to get that sleep over the course of the evening, you may not, depending on how your life is structured and how you have to balance your schedule. And so there is some evidence that really it's that total sleep that matters. Although, you know, some evidence would also suggest that getting that, the, you know, those eight hour blocks in longer chunks is better. Still, we know that napping can help compensate if that's a challenge for you. And so you're going to want to look at not necessarily sleep per day, but kind of total sleep within the week. And if you're trying to get 56 hours, you can get that through a combination of overnight sleep and through napping. As I've said, some of the, one of the things I've been working on over the last 18 months is working more napping into my routine, even if it's 30 to 45 minute chunks, two or three times a week. I've found that it has really made a big difference for me on on building that sleep quantity. So sleep quantity, the most basic, most obvious thing, but I think sometimes maybe we overly focus there and don't also focus as much as we need to on sleep quality and how good your sleep is. As And again, this is where I'm learning a little bit more using this app that my wife got me. She got me this ring for Christmas. And so the app actually looks at different sleep burials beyond just total sleep. It's looking at sleep efficiency, sleep restfulness, the percentage of time you you spend in REM and deep sleep. It's also looking at something called latency, which is how fast you fall asleep or slow you fall asleep. And so some of these other dimensions, while they're not necessarily standardized, are other things you want to be thinking about and considering And, you know, we can start with the basics of latency. Sleep latency is how fast you fall asleep. And interestingly, in the app, you want to see if you're falling asleep in an optimal range, which is that it should take optimally anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes 
for you to fall asleep once your head hits that pillow. And if it's taking you longer than that, then that's a sign that you've got some challenges with your sleep. If it's taking you if it's taking you less than five minutes, there's also perhaps a sign there that you have some challenges with your sleep if you're if you're too tired, if you fall asleep too quickly. And while you know, I don't think that's something to necessarily worry about too much, it basically the message here is that you want to see that you're falling asleep within a reasonable time frame and not laying awake too much in bed. So that's one sleep restfulness, which essentially relates to the amount of time that you're spending in, in deeper sleep cycles versus in lighter sleep cycles. And that can be affected by a few different variables and there. Then there's sleep efficiency, which is the measurement of your overall measurement of sleep quantity and, and, Basically, it's the percentage of time you're actually sleeping in bed after going to bed. And you want to see that that's 85 to 90%, 95% of time that you're actually attempting to sleep. And so, you know, those are some variables. Again, these are not necessarily standardized. These are measured by the app. But the point here is that Yes, sleep quantity matters, but the quality of sleep in terms of how quickly you get to bed and then how much time you spend within deeper sleep cycles, as well as total time spent sleeping while trying to sleep, you know, those are other variables that this app is measuring and that you want to consider to to make sure that, you know, you're doing the right things from a sleep perspective. And I list I list those things not necessarily for you to go get this ring or for you to try to measure those things yourself, but because those other variables are affected by things that you can actively manage in terms of sleep hygiene. So I want to talk a little bit about sleep hygiene right now, because I think, you know, quantity is harder to change. Yeah. If you can add naps, great. That's, that's helpful to try to boost that total quantity. But once we're in an established routine, it's hard to change quantity. It's hard to get an extra hour of sleep and build that, you know, build that into your routine. It's hard to go to bed an hour earlier or wake up an hour later. Those things are pretty hard. And I'm not saying you shouldn't try to make those adjustments, but I think we also have to remember that sleep sleep quantity is a big factor. And, and there's some pretty easy things to do to control that, that don't, have to change our routine and what are those things so let's talk about it and and these are all things you may have heard about before but i think sometimes we don't necessarily do the work you know that you take some simple steps to make your sleep quality better so what are they one managing light in your room it's proven that the darker the room the better your sleep and that's making sure that you're managing foreign light that might be entering your space. So not only having blackout curtains to keep light from the outside, but also making sure that you're not getting light from electronics that might be polluting your sleep environment and your sleep space. I've talked about it before, but I've got a little blue light that goes around the the power button to the television we have in our room that lights up our room pretty brightly unless I cover it. So at times I put sleep o- uh, put tape over that. Other times I just throw a pillow over it. There's also little lights on the cable box that are throwing light into the room and polluting the room that 
may seem pretty subtle on the surface, but once your eyes uh, your eyes adjust, it's pretty bright and it's affecting you in ways that you may not realize. So making sure that you're covering up that foreign light inside your space could also come from your cell phone that might be lighting up at night. So making sure that that's either flipped over to, to be covered or you have that sleep mode enabled so that it's not lighting up with your notifications at night. So watch that light, external light with the blackout shades and then get rid of that foreign light in whatever way you need to that might be coming from electronics within your room. So that's one thing. Temperature. Sleep environment is critical. The app I'm using says that 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius is the optimal sleep temperature. And that may not be, maybe it's a little bit easier to do that in the winter time than the summer in Texas. It's hard to get it down to 65 degrees, but being able to create a cool, whatever cool means for you. And for me, I found that 65 is a little too chilly, but if in the, in the winter time we can get kind of a 67 to 68 range, that tends to, to work well for me. And then trying in the summer to lower that temperature a little bit at night, usually in the summer in Texas, I keep, keep my thermostat on 75 during the day, but then we'll try to drop it down a little bit at night, 72 or 73, try to make it a little bit cooler, even though I don't want to, I don't want to cool things down that much and kick on the AC too much at night in our summers so that we can conserve energy and power. But either way, our nighttime sleep temperature is always a little bit cooler. That's something you can play with and affect. So drop that temperature at night. Secondly, avoiding or thirdly, avoiding spicy food or heavy meals right before bedtime is critical. Avoiding phys- rigorous physical activity within an hour or two of bedtime is critical. And then to the extent possible, disconnecting from your bright screens and your devices within an hour of bedtime is another thing that you should try to do. And this one probably is one of the harder ones for me because I, you know, I'll tend to lay in bed and look at my phone and check email and and messages, you know, do final spend through social media. But what's happening is that that light, that blue light from the screen is actually disrupting your brain in a way that prevents you from going into deeper sleeps overnight. And, and so it actually affects your sleep quality in a way that you might not ever realize. But one thing this app is telling me is that it's affecting my, my restfulness or my ability to get deeper sleeps or deeper, get to deeper sleep cycles at night, which affects my overall sleep quantity or quality. So avoid that blue light you know, there are such things as blue light blockers, which you can get that can be helpful. You can also turn on your sleep mode in your iPhone at least, and it will change or you can set it to change basically your screen brightness in certain hours so that it doesn't affect you in the same ways. But the best thing really is to put that phone aside within an hour of bedtime so that you're not as affected your brain isn't as stimulated going into sleep so that you can get into deeper sleep cycles and 
And those are the big things around sleep hygiene. The only other one I'll mention is the effect of alcohol on sleep. And this one is something that I'm personally playing with now that I have this new ring is that I am finding if I have, you know, a couple of drinks, a couple of drinks or more then that is affecting my sleep scores in ways that I'm really now seeing. And so I don't usually drink alcohol every night. That's not something that's in my routine, but I am finding that if I have two glasses of wine or more, that it affects my sleep quality in a way that I'm now able to measure. And so making sure that I, I choose those times wisely is something that I've become more aware of. Not that I'm going to personally cut out alcohol because I do enjoy having a glass of wine with my wife or friends, but now I can at least see the trade-off more directly than I'm making when I choose to do so and in what quantities so that I can just make that decision. It's not necessarily about sacrificing something, but it's just about saying, okay, if I make this choice, the implications are as follows. And, you know, I'll have to then live with those implications or be okay living with those implications, which might just change my decisions about when I'm making those choices and so forth. So alcohol does affect sleep quality and it's just something to know, not necessarily something to to change dramatically. And obviously I'm, I'm not a proponent of restricting yourself from anything, but you just want to know the impact of those choices on sleep as a result and it does affect sleep quality especially you know when you get to a little bit more alcohol consumed at a given at a given time so so just think about that know about that try to understand how it's affecting you so those are all sleep hygiene elements that even if you can't change sleep quality quantity will dramatically affect your sleep quality and there are things that you can do that are fairly simple. And you don't necessarily have to do all of them, but try to do some of them so that you're getting better sleep and therefore better recovery. So that's number two, sleep. Third, let's talk about food as fuel. Food as fuel. I think oftentimes we forget about this part of the equation, but it's important. But after a big workout or long run, you want to make sure that roughly within the first hour after completing that workout or long run, you're fueling your body, you're kick-starting recovery by refueling your body in a balanced way. Now, you'll read people or read instructions from people about having certain macronutrients balance or a certain macronutrient balance in a recovery meal, in a refueling process. But I don't know that I'm as concerned about that as a coach. I'm more concerned about getting a balanced meal within that window, roughly one hour to 90 minutes after a workout or long run. And again, I don't think you have to be perfect here, but you want to get a balance of carbs, protein, and fat coming in in fuel after workout so that you can kickstart that recovery process. It's important 
and the window with which you do it is important. I don't think you have to do anything crazy or specific or too specific, but making sure that you get post long run post workout, get in a solid, balanced recovery meal within an hour to 90 minutes of your work so that the body can start to go to work on itself. The other thing related to this is hydration. And I think this becomes more important during the summer months where particularly in places like Texas where it can be particularly hot or humid, it's easy to get into a hydration deficit after a long run in particular. But I like to see that an athlete get back to sort of a normal urination pattern as quickly as possible post long run, especially since those tend to be longer efforts. And so making sure that you're rehydrating post-workout so that you're getting back to a normal sort of urination cycle becomes really important. I think that's especially important in the summer when it's easy to get into a deficit in a three-hour or four-hour long run for some of you. So make sure you're hydrating well, make sure you're eating well immediately after those workouts or long runs, just well and balanced. Again, that helps kickstart that recovery process. Beyond that, beyond that immediate post-workout or long run fueling, you know, then the other part of this is just your normal daily nutrition. And evidence suggests that those who eat a balanced whole food oriented diet without a lot of processed foods tend to have lower inflammation within the body, which allows the body, instead of focusing on reducing inflammation from our food intake, it can focus on reducing inflammation from the work done in workouts and long runs. And so that means avoiding processed foods as much as possible. Now, again, I'm not someone who's super strict on this. I believe everything in moderation is okay. That's my personal approach. But in general, whole foods, a diet low in processed foods will help you reduce overall inflammation and allow your body, again, to focus more on on removing that inflammation from workouts itself. So those are the two critical pieces of fueling food is fuel immediately post-workout and then obviously using your diet to reduce overall inflammation by focusing on eating whole foods is critical and for some of you who may have sensitivities or inflammation caused by certain foods really trying to eliminate those foods from your diet as much as possible is another part of that personally i've kind of discovered that peanuts peanut butter is an inflammatory food for me unfortunately because I love peanut butter and so I've started to trim that back I'm not I've not eliminated it completely from my diet but I've trimmed back my level of peanut butter consumption to avoid inflammation from that so there you go those are your three big recovery elements movement sleep and food as fuel I really do believe that focusing there get you 95% of the way, maybe even more, maybe 98% of the way on recovery. And if you want to spend time on other recovery modalities, then certainly you can, but those then become more accessories if you really dialed in on those core three. If you look at those other modalities, the one that seems to have the most evidence associated with it is massage and getting a regularly scheduled massage 
personally, I tend to do it every three to four weeks when I'm in heavy training mode and whether or not recovery is coming from the actual pressing of the muscles or just from that hour of relaxation where you're clearing your mind and you're quiet in space, whether or not it's coming from one or the other, we don't necessarily know. Science hasn't told us that, but it is there is some evidence that that regular massage is a helpful recovery modality. So if you're going to add one more thing to the mix, then that would be the thing to add beyond that. And, and by the way, that massage includes self massage, I believe with the foam roller, maybe now if you have a Theragun or, or a hypervolt, you know, that self massage is a part of that massage equation that I'm talking about beyond that cryo ice bass float pout float pods all of those things the science is unproven that it it actually promotes recovery and then it just simply becomes about you trying it to see if it's something that you feel helps you and then if you want to incorporate that into your own routine then science does tell us that if you have an established routine that you feel is working for you whether or not it's actually working and maybe it's just a placebo effect, we don't know. But if you have an established routine and you think it's working, then then it actually helps. So massage would be the first thing to consider and those other modalities beyond that. Again, cryo, float pods, ice baths, all those other pieces, you know, kind of depends on what you believe in, what works for you. And so it then it becomes about trying those things and seeing if it works for you. And if you want to add it to your routine, great. And if you don't, that's okay too. The one asterisk I would put into that conversation, part of the conversation is ice baths. And there's some evidence that ice baths short circuit the body's recovery mechanisms in a way that isn't healthy or that can actually prevent adaptation from workouts and and so the, the the science now says that ice baths should really probably be avoided as a recovery modality except maybe in very specific circumstances so the thinking on ice baths has changed pretty significantly especially in the last three to five years so in general avoid those unless you know exactly how you're using it and that's really all I'll say about those other recovery modalities. To me, in summary, if you're really nailing the movement part, the sleep part, the food is fuel part, and maybe adding massage to routine, then then that's really all you need to be doing in order to make sure that you're recovering in the right way. And if you're complicating it more than that, then I would encourage you maybe to refocus on some of those core elements particularly the sleep element in order to make sure that you're recovering the right way so that you can not only prepare your muscles for those next hard days, but again, as I remind you, build fitness in a way that makes you faster over the long term. So there you go. Those are my reminders about recovery, trying to summarize and simplify. And maybe for some of you, that's keeping it too simple. But really, those key recovery modalities are just the very basic, simple things that are right in front of us and don't involve anything that has to cost a lot of money or take a lot of 
extra time. So hopefully that provides some encouragement to you and has given you some things to work on in your own recovery. If you have thoughts or questions on that, would love to hear them. You can email me, chris at roguerunning.com. Otherwise, I'll wrap this episode 168. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at roguerunning. Or you can follow me at roguechris on Instagram or at chrismcclung on Twitter. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.